This is Speaking Z Theology with Chris Green. So, back again with Chris and Bill. Um, just, I don't know, a few days ago, we had a conversation uh, also with David Harvey. And Chris, when you texted me about that conversation, initially you had said, we're going to talk, let's, let's have a conversation about the satanic and the demonic, which I was excited about because... Um, a few years ago, you started, you kind of introduced a particular way of thinking about this to me. And it's like one of these things that I brought up with several people uh, and have thought often like, oh man, I need, I need Chris to write more or, or say more, explicate this, this further. So I was really excited to talk about it, but we didn't talk about that at all. We started off talking about N.T. Wright and we exactly never right. recovered. Exactly right. That's exactly right. So let's let's actually give it a shot today. See if see if we can do it. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we could start with this. The what was the experience? Uh, how how did how were the demonic and the satanic talked about in the churches in the houses you grew up in? Like in, in the circles you moved in when you were young. Like how how did people describe the demonic and satanic? Uh, Bill, well, I'm going to let you talked about often. I mean, was it something that came up, came up often or. Brewer, you can tackle this one first. It sounds like something you really want to talk about to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember the demonic being referenced a lot more than the satanic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was typically, you know, oppressive kind of individual experiences, whether they be more, um, you know, sort of momentary or, you know, over the long haul kind of thing. I mean, so there was things like, you know, a sort of experience of demonic activity, like, oh man, we really encountered like, you know, a spirit of fear. Yeah. Yeah. And and there was, you know, plenty of talk about like manifestations of that stuff. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. like I was, you know, asleep and I woke up in the middle of the night and there was like a dark, you know, figure in the room. And, and yeah. I just knew like, this is the spirit of fear, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were those sorts of experiences. Um, but then there was also kind of a, you know, a way of talking about demonic activity, which was kind of oppressive, you know, think about things like addictions or, um, I think it was probably tied to something like generational curses that kind of talk mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. sort of the demonic activity over the long haul on upon yeah. a family. Yeah. Uh, that kind did they, of, did they make distinction between possession and oppression? Yes. You hear that? Yeah. No, yes, that was, yes, that yes, 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 yes. Christians could not be possessed, right. but they could be oppressed. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think maybe I'm not being fair. I said the satanic wasn't referenced much, but there was a lot of talk about spiritual warfare. Yeah. And so it was, but it was more like, here's the work of the enemy. Here's the work of Satan. That's kind of carried out in these kind of demonic ways. Yeah. Um, but it was all, it was, I guess it was all sort of lumped together though. Definitely. Yeah. Bill, what about for you? It was always interesting to me that they would tell you, you know, if you're saved, you are God's property. And mm. God, it, when I grew up, it was said like this, God can do whatever he wants with his property. So if he doesn't want Satan to possess you, then you won't be. 
And yeah. so there was that teaching. And then if during a service they were going to, you know, cast a demon out of somebody, the pastor would say something like, if you're, if you're not right with God, get out of here. Yes. Or go to the back. <laughs> yeah, because the, this demon's going to want to demons can't reach you, you know, 30 feet away. They can get <laughs> inside your consciousness, but not, yeah. they can't cover 30 feet. It, it was like the first social distancing before we knew what that mm, meant. Mm, yeah. But it but was it always works with demons. It doesn't work with viruses. Like social distancing doesn't actually work <laughs> with anything physical, but it does work metaphysically. <laughs> and what, what killed me about it was on the one hand, it was like, okay, I'm God's property. And on the other hand, if this demon can get me, like, why would God let such a terrible thing into his property? So I was always confused as a young person. The yep. satanic was talked about in mostly when in my circles, mostly about like groups of people or categories of people. Mm. And so like these groups are satanic, you know, yes. uh, these yes. bands are satanic, you know, this kind of music is satanic. And then the demonic mm. was That's very, good, actually. I had that too, Bill. Yeah. I remember yeah. that. And then the, the demonic was like a very personal, like, you know, I feel the demonic in my house. I felt the demonic when I was watching this movie yeah. You know, I, I grew up not allowed. It was really interesting. And I hope my parents are listening to this. I'm going to send this to them once it comes out. I grew up not allowed to watch TV because, you know, the demonic can come through the television and attack you. So I was allowed to watch The Sound of Music. I was allowed to watch all the Back to the Futures, all the Rockies and Batman One. Like, I just, I don't understand. I would love my parents to do like a write and a rubric for why they allowed certain things and didn't. Um, but it, that's basically how it was. I remember nights where we would like be putting oil on doors and praying mm -hmm. because my parents felt something off in the house. And that was always the demonic. Yeah. yeah the yeah, satanic yeah. was relegated to like movie theaters were satanic. A movie in my house is demonic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that, I, love oh, them. Yeah, I love them. I'm not trying to diss my parents. Um, I'm sure there's sense to be made, and I'm hoping Chris, you can help us make sense of this today. <laughs> well, I, 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 just, I think this this distinction between the demonic and satanic is is actually a helpful one, and it's it's one I think operative in in scripture, and it's drawing our attention to the ways in which evil works on us. Like so, in shorthand, and then we'll look at some texts. We'll we'll see kind of where where those take us, but I think one of the ways to kind of open the conversation is the demonic is chaotic. It's kind of the embodiment of darkness, and it threatens our undoing. It threatens to destroy. So the demonic is that which kind of eats up, devours. It's it's destructive, and threatens kind of complete annihilation it threatens total undoing and the satanic is not about disorder so much as false order it's not about darkness so much as false light and it offers us rescue from the threat of the demonic so in in general i think it works something like this that evil is always attacking us with demonic forces that threaten to undo what we love, but it's also also always offering us rescue 
Like here, here's a way to save yourself from the disorder, from the threat of destruction, from the darkness, from the false darkness, the bad darkness that the demonic is and represents. And I, th- I think, I think we actually see that everywhere in Scripture. I mean, one place to start is is Second Corinthians, yeah, Second Corinthians two. Listen, listen to like I, I want to read my way toward that that statement. So I made up my mind not to make you another painful visit. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I am confident about all of you that my joy would be the joy of all of you. For I wrote to you out of much distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So like Paul is this deep conflict with these Corinthian Christians. And he's saying, I, I wrote what we would call now the tearful letter. He wrote this tearful letter, which we don't have access to. And it was, it was marked by this pain, right? Then he identifies the pain with kind of within their community. But if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but to some extent, not to exaggerate it, to all of you. This punishment by the majority is enough for such a person, right? So he's talking about someone who's done wrong and done wrong against Paul. But Paul is saying that didn't hurt me so much as it hurt all of you, right? So uh, some scholars think this is this is someone who opposed Paul publicly. That when Paul tries to assert his pastoral authority with these people, someone in the congregation resists Paul publicly and essentially wins the day. But in fracturing community and in harming Paul, he's 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 the the community has retaliated against this man whoever he was that caused this pain and paul is saying listen he caused pain to you not just to me the punishment by the majority is enough for such a person so now instead you should forgive and console him so that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow so i urge you to reaffirm your love for him i wrote for this reason to test you and to know whether you are obedient in everything Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And we do this, and here's the line, and we do this so that we may not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his devices. We do this so that we may not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And that, to me, those, those, that pair of terms being outwitted and being ignorant of his devices. Like those are the tricks that he uses against us, right? So Satan is witty or clever and he has devices that he uses against us. And, And so I think that this, this passage is speaking to that difference. The man brings disorder to the community. He asserts a correction against Paul. The community then asserts a correction against him. And, we're left in this this place of judgment and estrangement, and Paul is calling for reconciliation through forgiveness. But he says we must do this. We must have this forgiveness and reconciliation because we are not ignorant of Satan's devices, and we must not let Satan outwit us. I think what Paul is recognizing is that the satanic temptation here is to create a community 
that is fractured and settled in its fracturedness out of a sense of having done the right thing. Mm. Right? So the demonic is trying to break the community, right? It's trying to shatter this, the wholeness that these people have as a family. But the satanic is trying to get them to accept that fracturedness as something they, that's right and good. That's right. Really forgive the man and bring about reconciliation and wholeness and submission to Paul in that process. They're clinging to this notion that we did the right thing. There's no coming back from this for this man. You know, we, we have to remain separate from him. He has to remain separate from us. Does that make sense? Do you, do you see the, so that to me is, that's the text where this first clicked for me. Oh, I do see that. That's great. I mean, I think, and it feels, it feels terrifying <laughs> because that feels so easy that sort mm-hmm. of settled in our even being fractured, but like we or I, you know, we have done the right thing here. Yes. Which no doubt, you know, at yeah. least initially, there's not a sense that they didn't do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Right. But there's just more to be done. Yeah. And this is, this is a little too simple and I want to complicate it later, but I think, if we're thinking about the demonic as the chaotic and the destructive, the, the kind of bad darkness and the light as false order, I mean, the, the satanic as false order and false light that's promising, promising to rescue us, then essentially the demonic is trying to get us to do the wrong thing. But the satanic is trying to get us to do the right thing in the wrong way. Right, the right, right, the the right, at least something that begins in the right way and then veers into something else. Can I can I share a personal anecdote here, story? Yeah, 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 please. So in, and and I look forward to diving into this deeper if we ever get to do the uh, spiritual direction conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, one of the things that my spiritual director helped me with, and I'll say this very very quickly, Chris. We've talked about this a bit is he's he's helped me it's it was it's a strategy and maybe an oversimplified strategy but he he's talking to me about why why somebody or why I can have major issues take place and I maintain a, like a calm cool and collected demeanor and then something very trivial could happen and it triggers you and like takes you days to recover and his point my spiritual director brother Randy Grieve um his his point was that whenever something whenever something happens that is narrated to you by a specific voice you have inside of you mm-hmm. and he said we all have a voice a, almost a sentence that's unique to us that whenever that sentence can get its voice around something it could be the smallest thing and it could take you some really dark places so he he gave me a few practices to discern what is that voice in me what does that voice in me say and I, I've shared this now publicly enough to feel very comfortable sharing it. My voice, and this this is going to go directly into everything you just said. The voice in me is the voice that says, you mess everything up for everybody else. Mm. So it's not a fear of making a mistake as much as it's a fear that my mistakes will make things worse for everybody else around me. Yeah, yeah. So whenever a situation happens in my life where... It's easy to connect the dots between something I've messed up and then the, the, the tension or the disturbance that that brings into other people's lives. 
that can send me places that aren't healthy. If, if I make a mistake and I can just see how it affected me, I'm fine. I'll, I'll move through it perfectly fine. Somebody else makes a mistake, move through it perfectly fine. But if the tension created seems to be something I did that's now creating worse tension for other people, that's when I can slip and slide into, you know, some not healthy mentalities. And as we were, me and you were talking about this a few weeks ago, I, I realized something that the, that first voice, you mess everything up for everyone else. I think that's the demonic. Mm -hmm. That voice is trying to break me apart. It's, it's trying to, you know, cause chaos in my thinking. I think the satanic is, happens when I think that the fix for the you mess everything up for everybody voice is I can make things good for everybody else. Mm -hmm. So yes. the, the break apart voices, Bill, when you mess up, you mess up, not just for you, but for everybody, the satanic yeah. voice comes in and says, we can fix this. You can make things right for everybody all the time. Yeah. You can do things right in a way that makes everybody else's life around you better. And I feel like, it's so easy to say yes to that and pursue that and feel right about that. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, a little tricky. And I think that could be that set order that feels right. But it's yeah. actually, uh, it's a new idolatry. Yeah. And it, like, and this is where, you know, this will make more and more sense as we talk, hopefully. But I, I think kind of recognizing that evil requires our cooperation. Right. And it, either way, like the demonic can't actually do all the demonic's going to do without us participating in it. And we can participate in in the demonic against others and against ourselves. And vice and, and and the same thing holds true for the satanic, right? So the accusation that's leveled against us often takes the shape of our own self-address, the way in which I talk to myself. That's so good. Right. And and so this is this is why you know for instance in the prodigal son story, it's so telling I think that the younger son the prodigal right is in the far country he came to himself the text says, and he says, my my father's slaves have it better than I do so I'm going to go and I'm going to say this when I get there, right? So he's talking to himself right. Then he gets to the father and he's still in that same mindset right. You're you know, I, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'm not, I'm not even worthy to be a slave, but your slaves fare better than I do. And then the elder son says the same thing, right? All, all of these years I've worked like a slave for you. So mm. the, those, the sons right in that story have this internal dialogue of that identify, they both identify as slaves, right? Which is what evil wants. It's convinced them both, but in different ways, right? Like, so the prodigal thinks I've so wasted everything. I'm no better than a slave. The older son is I'm the best son because I've worked like a slave. Right. To your point, Bill, about the ways in which it, there's a, that accusation opens the door to a kind of false affirmation, like by this identity, this is who you actually are. And that, that false identity is, but it's still enslavement. It's still degrading and dehumanizing, right? Even though it, it's associated with feelings of power and 
it's named in the language of pride, not humiliation. It's still enslavement, right? And I think the what we see with those sons is you know, bears on this for sure. Second Corinthians six. Let me let me show you this real quick, Bill. This is what I was talking about earlier with on on one hand and the other. So if we think of evil as kind of always making this attack from two sides, you know, or or, or from trying to surround us, coming at us from several directions. Um, if we jump ahead in Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians six. Listen to what he he's talking specifically about what fellowship light has with darkness. Don't be mismatched with unbelievers. But I want you to hear this. The weapons of righteousness. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. This is verse three. We are putting no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we have commended ourselves in every way. Through great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God. And I think just a, a quick note here, the power of God, right, comes at the end, kind of at the, at the very end of this long list that begins with affliction, right? So we, we show ourselves to be God's by what we suffer, the afflictions, the hardships, the calamities, which those have to do, I think, with like the state of things not going our way. But then we move to people actively resisting us, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. We're getting closer to the heart of the of faithfulness to God, right? Through the resistance, we're getting closer to the heart. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit, Genuine love, truthful speech, the power of God. And then he says this, for the weapons of righteousness, with the weapons of righteousness, for the right hand and for the left. So if we think about like the right hand and the left as the left is where we're fending off the demonic. This is where that, that voice in you is saying, you ruin it for everyone, Bill. But you have to immediately be ready to fight it off on the other hand too, with Oh, but I, if I do it the right way, I can make it good for everyone. Right. Yep. I'm tracking you. Yes. I mean, you're, that's what you're talking about. Yeah. That's, that's spot on. Yeah. So if we, if we hear this text, right. As you've got a battle on one side against, you know, accusation, and then you've got a battle on the other hand against a kind of false identity that's being affirmed for you. Listen to the way Paul describes it. Right. So we we have weapons of righteousness for both hands, like right hand and left. In honor and dishonor, ill repute and good repute. We are treated as impostors, and yet we are true. We are treated as unknown, and yet are well known. As dying, and see we are alive. As punished, and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich as having nothing and yet possessing everything. And then he says, open wide your hearts to us. There's no restriction in our affection for you. So how do you think this helps us, like this this language of weapons for the left hand and the right hand, how, how does it help us think about this, the way in which evil is working against us, fighting us? I mean, I guess simply just that it's a, it's a dual it's a dual kind of work, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's a dual attack. There is 
like, I mean, this is, this is why, you know, Paul ends that section just a few chapters earlier, right? So that we're not ignorant of the devil's wiles or, mm-hmm. you know, ways, however, whatever version you have. But, um, yeah, that we're going to be, we're going to be attacked in this way, but there's another attack, right? That actually seeks to. And as far as evil's concerned, you know, it's, I think it's satisfied with destroying us, but deceiving us is far more effective. Like long-term, the damage is far more lasting, mm-hmm. right? Like the, it, another way of putting this is it's much, much harder for the elder son to find peace with the father and his brother than it is for the younger son. Right. That there's, there's a way in which when, when you're deceived, the, when the satanic has gripped your imagination, it's much, much harder to, to be freed from that. And and let's go to this story. So you remember the story of Legion, Mm -hmm. you know, Jesus, they, they, they dock the boat. Jesus gets off the boat and this, this man uh, floods to Jesus with have mercy on us, right? Like don't, don't torment us. And it, the text goes back and forth, sometimes referring to what the man is saying, sometimes what the, the legions, the legion of demons is saying. And I mean, we don't know for sure, but I, I think it makes a ton of sense to assume that this man is a legionnaire, that he's a soldier who's you know traumatized in battle and is now filled up with, with spirits of death, right? He's, he's seen the demonic in war up close and it's, it's, eaten away at him, right? We don't know his, his proper name, but then, you know, Jesus, everybody, you know, the, the, the spirits say, don't torment us, which is fascinating, right? Like mm-hmm. don't, don't send us into the pit. And then Jesus allows them to go into the pigs, which is a whole nother conversation. Yeah. Then the, the people of the town come out and they're terrified. Are terrified and i i do think there's a there's a link here in, in terms of different kinds of fear so there's the fear that the demonic awakens in us but actually that's a fear we know how to master the satanic knows we know how to master that right so mm-hmm. this this city this village even though they were terrified of this man whatever his name was who was possessed by these spirits they knew how to handle him. I mean, they couldn't really handle him. He broke the chains and so on, but mm-hmm. he stayed in his place. Mm-hmm. Like there, the city is not needing to be delivered from him. They know where to put him outside the walls, right outside the village in the graves. Mm-hmm. And they, they kind of, even though they can't control him exactly they're he's just controllable enough that they feel secured. And, and this is the trick. I think this is what evil is always doing, giving us a threat that's just controllable enough that we feel we are right in what we're doing to control it. That's so good. And just right. uncontrollable enough, right, that we're never fully settled. We are always having to turn up the intensity of our defensiveness a little bit more, right. a little bit more. We have to amp up what we do in response, right? Because we're just on that precipice of complete chaos. Exactly. So think about the analogy between this man that has wronged Paul that the Corinthians have ousted from their church Mm -hmm. and this demonic 
you know, whatever his name was, who's been eaten up by these spirits of death, that this, what's actually happening is evil is constricting or suffocating those communities. Right? We're, we're focused on those individuals, Legion and this nameless man who's been ousted from the community. But what evil is doing is killing those communities, slowly suffocating the life out of those communities by getting them to turn up their their fear more right. and more and more and to turn and to amplify their the intensity of their aggression against what threatens them right to make them more militant more defensive more aggressive and every time they they t- turn the screw one more notch of intensity the less life they have right and they're they're actually this is what i mean when i say evil requires our cooperation like they're destroying themselves um, at evil's prodding and this is why it's the village that drives jesus away so like notice the demonic spirits and the man who's demonized they don't run from jesus they run to him but the people that run jesus off are the people who are more afraid of what the world is when they they don't have this threat than they are of the threat itself right that their identity is is determined by by the security they provide against the threat that legion represented yeah i mean chris we we've talked about this extensively and you know just like you know so much christian theology is rooted in an anti-roman catholic sentiment yes right and so it's like all of this theology for for hundreds and hundreds of years are built on securing an anti-reality yes yes and you know i'm sure everybody listening i'm sure you guys we could all find five or six of these examples Lest we look in our own homes to see where we've done mm-hmm. <laughs> something very similar. Well, in, in in Paul's lists in in Second um, Corinthians six, you have something like calamity, and then period of speech, um, purity of speech, honor, dishonor, sorrow, rejoicing, having mm-hmm. nothing yet possessing everything. In some ways, could we look at that and say? There's ways in which that we can identify the demonic in the calamity the dishonor, the sorrow, the having nothing, and yes. miss how the satanic can show up in our purity of speech, our, it, yeah. honored, our rejoicing, and our possessing everything. Yeah. It, it, if you just go through that list again, there is a kind of self-denial that God calls us to, which means, you know, like Paul can say, I, I know how to do all things in Christ. I know how to be abased. I know how to do without, Right. I can I can fast. I can I can be impoverished. The so everything in that list I think works both ways. One, there's a way in which you in the freedom and wisdom of the spirit are choosing that for the sake of mission, for the sake of caring for your neighbor. Mm. Right? Having nothing. Right? I, I don't I don't have to possess anything. But at the same time, in Christ, you know that you you do in fact have all things. All things are Christ, are you, all things are yours because you are Christ and Christ is God's. But there's also an evil distortion of that in which you're not relinquishing your goods like the rich young ruler was called to do. You're having your goods taken from you, like you're you're being plundered. You're not you're not freed from possessiveness. You've been dispossessed. Mm. 
So there's a kind of poverty that's oppressive, that's mm -hmm. demonic. It's stripping you of the basic needs of life. And then there's a kind of poverty that is graced because you're you're not in need, like you're you're freed up from it. And there's a kind of confidence that's rooted in knowing God has given me these goods and I'm God's and, and no weapon formed against me can prosper. And then that can be tied. That can also be distorted into a, a false identity in which we are, we're proud, you know, self-exalting. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think. That's so right. in, um, on the, on the sanctuary Tulsa podcast, uh, this past Sunday, Bishop Ed Gunger preached a sermon on money. Mm. And this is this, uh, you guys can say whatever you want about it. I, I'll, this is my personal thing. It's one of the best sermons I've ever heard in my entire life, both in tone and in content on the subject. And wow. if people are curious, they should go subscribe to Sanctuary Tulsa and, and listen to that sermon. And in, in that sermon, he told the story about how, you know, when, when he was first saved, it was easy for him to just live the missional life and not have a lot of money and just assume that all loss is for the sake of the kingdom. And yeah. when people first started to talk to him about, and there's, there's a question here for you, Chris, when people first started to talk to him about praying for his needs, you know, asking God to give, you know, more than just pay the bill money, but money to be secure money to save. He felt he said he felt excited he said he said he felt angry and jealous at the same time. Mm. Like mm. jealous, like wh wh why do, oh no, I'm sorry. He said he felt excited and jealous at the same time. Excited that, you know, maybe we could do this. Maybe that's something God wants to answer. And jealous because he felt like he wasn't allowed to do that. But why do other people get to pray that? Mm. And then as I was listening to the sermon, I was feeling those feelings based on what he was saying. <laughs> yeah, Like something about, hearing a message like that about money and saying that we're allowed to pray and we're allowed to ask God for these things and that our faithfulness does matter in terms of, you know, what we have and, and how we have it. It conflicts with so much in me when I hear a sermon like that, like it was one of the best ones I've ever heard. And it left me in like this consternation of like, does that work? And there's a specific question here. Does that work for everybody everywhere? Is it wrong to pray these things? It feels so right and exciting and assuring to be able to. There's all kinds of feelings that come with that. Is there spiritual warfare there going on? Like, like a sermon like that can provoke so much because so many of us have heard so many different things about money. And he did such a good job covering all of those possibilities mm -hmm. in somehow a magical 23 minutes, which sidebar, how in God's name did he do that? But anyway, it, it's such a good sermon because it is such a table setter for some healthy discussion about these feelings that we have when we think about something like capitalism, like money, like provision. It feels like the line between what God is doing and what evil might be doing is so fine and so sharp the yin and yang seems so like perfectly close together there. Can yeah. you, does this, are, is something like that and the feelings it provokes in what we're talking about here a little bit? Oh, absolutely. It absolutely is. And I, I, I think, I think there, there are several reasons for that. Like one is what we might call like the trickiness of evil. Like 
Satan's pretty good at his job. I mean, not that it's his job, but I mean, he, he's happy, you buddy. You're doing good. <laughs> like, like he's in in the language of Paul. Like he's witty. Like he's got a cleverness. He's got he can outwit us if we're not careful. And so I think we we often underestimate how good evil is at working, uh, getting us to work against ourselves, getting us to work against God, right? So I think that's one aspect of it. Another is how patient and caring God is in guiding us. Right. So, so I think we, we, we underestimate God far more than we underestimate evil. And, and then there's just the complexity of being human. Like when, and when you combine like the mystery of God with, or you, you recognize the way in which the human complexity is kind of charged with the mystery of God and then the nonsense or the absurdity of evil. Well, I mean, of course these things can't be talked about simplistically, right? Like from, from God's perspective, it's all clear and simple, but we're inside the experience, right? We're, we're in, we're flooded by our, our fears and our wishes, our, our bad, our bad hopes and all that we're dreading. So like it, it's it's really hard not to fall into bad passivity where you're just an observer in what happens to you. You know, this this and I, I see this all the time, all the time, in my own life and in the life of people I care about, where in suffering they become simply passive observers of what is happening to them. Right. And that's that's a mark that kind of evil is is getting the better of us. Right. It's it's winning the day. But then there are also people who at times they have a bad activity, a, a bad assertiveness in which they are always talking like they're in control. They're dictating the terms and evil wins that way, too. Right. Because that's not what life is actually at like and i think what you're hearing in bishop ed's sermon what we're reading you know in paul is this sense in which it's always on the one hand and the other hand yeah yeah it's always this and that you know there's this line i I was listening to a sermon last night um and he read the text where moses goes out to his brethren so this is the moment where moses is kind of identifying with the fact that he is an israelite and these are his people who are enslaved. And the text says he looked, he see he sees these these two fighting. He looks this way and that way, mm. and then approached them. It's, he saw that no one was looking. He looked this way and that way, and the and then falls right into the temptation of taking the matter into his own hands. Right. So it's like he he underestimated that that the the source of the trouble might be inside him. Wow. Right. He looks that way and this way, but no, it's, it's in you. Like the, the issue is, is in you. And I, I think the, what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is Satan has devices and he's, he's clever and you've got to pay attention. You've got to have the wisdom of God, the light of God and, and some humility. You can't take yourself too seriously, but you also can't be, you can't be wrongly passive either. You can't be bad you know, badly passive in the face of all this, you, you have to, you have to be patient, be patient with God's patience and find a way to kind of work out, Oh, this is what's happening here. And I don't think there, 
there are you know rules that work across the board that's that's not god's order that's a false order like that kind of principles that work for everybody in every case like that kind of simplification is exactly what the satanic wants us to buy into because that's what suffocates life right god, what god wants for us is abundant life what the satanic offers us is not life but security against death yeah that's good like what what the satanic is selling us is you won't be able to live your best life you won't be able to live a life that's really living but you will have security right and this this is where you can see having money can so easily become oppressive for the person who has money not just the people who they've taken it from or the people they're exploiting to make it right it can suffocate their lives too in that they can't live life for fear of Mm-hmm. what they would lose in the process. Whereas, you know, what you get with what you see in, in the saints is they're able to live and they can live again, back to Paul, they can live with plenty or they can live with lack. I have to say this for people. Cause we, we, the three of us can see each other uh, right now. And as a Pentecostal, Chris just made, Chris just dropped the mic on <laughs> God wants us to have abundant life. And evil wants us to merely have security against death. And right when he made that point, the sun shone through his window directly on his face. And I was like, I was just ready to take a lap around my church real fast and maybe wave some flags or whatever. And oh my God. That, that was such a good point. And the way the sun just entered your room when that happened was priceless. Absolutely priceless. You were on fire for a second. Floating tongues. Yeah, absolutely. It, man, it does strike me, Chris, how that yeah that protection against security against death and it's the satanic never like it gets a specific job done Mm -hmm. right It, it does something but it's it's never healing right it's never it's never wholeness to the example in in uh, second Corinthians two, right. It's never, it's never this man being restored and the community being restored. Um, and it's hard for me, like even in this moment to not think about, I don't know if it's helpful or harmful, but I'm nervous to bring up contemporary examples only because I don't want to detract from the conversation that we're having, right. To kind of engage, but there's a number of things you know, sort of nationally and internationally that are, that immediately come to mind where it's like, well, here's the answer, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, amp up the security, but never get to matters of, you know, healing or wholeness. Mm-hmm. No, we, we, we probably should talk about some contemporary examples. I mean, just in terms of exposing, again, Satan's devices. Like, I, I, I think this is... It's worth stressing that Paul does not see evil as kind of, it's not omniscient. It's uh, it's not omnipotent. It's something you can recognize. Like the, the spirit can show you how evil is working. You can see the devices. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're not merely, even though it, it's clever, if we are attuned to the mind of Christ, if we're, if we're thinking, in ways true to the gospel, we'll recognize it. We'll see it for what it is. And I, I think that's true of contemporary issues, not just the issues we see in the text. 
Um, there is there are a, a couple of passages I, I want us to reflect on biblical stories, but well, let, let me say something about the Joseph story, and then I want to come to Palm Sunday and talk about the way in which I think Palm Sunday draws our attention to how all this works in the life of Jesus. Um, I'm writing right now a chapter on Joseph, and it I mean it's it's I'm learning so much about the the history of interpretation, the ways in which this text has been read. And one of the things that's fascinating about it, right? So you, you've got Genesis ends with the story of Joseph. The last 12 or 13 chapters are devoted to his story. It's the most sustained narrative of any figure in Genesis, more, more sustained than, than seems to be warranted because he's not, he doesn't pray. He doesn't pray. And one of the things that, that careful readers have pointed out, Arthur Wasco, for example, I've been reading, who's a a rabbi, part of the Jewish renewal movement. So Wasco points out, and and he's not alone here. I mean, this is observed by many rabbis and Christian readers as well, that Joseph's dreams are not said to be from God. He has a dream about himself, but the text never says, the narrator doesn't say, and God gave him the dream, right? Then when he's in prison, he makes the statement, or, or maybe it's when he comes before Pharaoh, it's all running together in my head right at this moment. But there's a point at which Joseph says the interpretation of dreams belongs to God alone. But he doesn't actually ask God for guidance. So remember Pharaoh's dream that he's interpret that he interprets, he says is about a coming famine. And this is what can be done. And Wasco points out that there's this in light of interpretation that asks why Joseph doesn't ask God how to avoid the famine. He simply says it's going to happen. And here's what you can do to alleviate it. And what he does, what he suggests to Pharaoh to alleviate it in the short run does save his people, Joseph's people and Pharaoh's, but it centralizes power in the Pharaoh so that when a Pharaoh rises, who no longer knows Joseph, he enslaves Joseph's descendants. So right. on, on this line of reading, what happens is Joseph has a kind of instinct to order that seems to be rescuing people from the famine. But mm-hmm. because it's not attuned to the wisdom of God, it's a human wisdom, not a divine wisdom, or it's not God's human wisdom. It, it cannot avoid evil. All it can do is use it. Right? It can't find a way around famine. Right. It can only appropriate the famine and try to profit from it. And I, I think that that's like one of the ways in which, and Scripture returns to this theme over and over and over again. So think about, uh, let me just throw out a, a, a handful of passages. One is when Peter, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say I am? They're like, they give him a list. Elijah, John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, you know, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. And like, it's important that he names him as a son. Mm-hmm. Right. He, 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 you're Simon and you're a son of. Mm-hmm. And this did not come from flesh and blood. So he names, he, he's pointing to the fact that that Simon has a has a human legacy. No, he he is a human legacy. Like he he belongs to a lineage. 
but then immediately points to this didn't come from human wisdom. It didn't come about through the, the passing on of understanding. This came from the Father. This is revelation. Right? And then we all know what happens next. Right? Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him when Jesus says that he's going to be going to go to Jerusalem, be taken in hand and crucified. And we all know the first part of what Jesus says to Peter, right? Which is, get behind me, Satan. But remember the rest of it? Do you remember what else he says? Get behind me, Satan, for you have in mind the things of human beings, not the things of God. You have in mind the things of human beings. So the satanic is working on Peter's common sense. Yeah. That's that's the way in which the satanic is operating. So it knows that Peter has received this revelation, but Peter's understanding of that revelation is a common sense one, one that is shaped by the wisdom he's received from human beings. As a son of Jonah, as as a son of this particular tradition. He belongs to a line of thought, to a way of thinking, to a way of life. And as soon as God speaks to him, and it is God speaking to him, he then fits that revelation to his common sense. And that's where the satanic pulls its trick, right? That's how the satanic convinces him to Mm -hmm. be in opposition to Jesus to be true to the order of wisdom that he's received rather than the order of the wisdom of God, which is foolishness in the world, right? And if you if you connect that with what James says about the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below, the, listen to this, this is James 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be fo- boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. And I think that that is a succession, that this wisdom is earthy and earthly, and it ends up being devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. There will be. Right, So it starts with this sense of rivalry between human beings. Our mm-hmm. wisdom against the other wisdom. Me against you. Ours against theirs. And, But where that false order has hold, then it, it's going to create all kinds of disorder and wickedness of every kind. The wisdom from above, though, is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield full of mercy, right? So listen, like purity, peaceability, gentleness, willingness to yield. It's full of mercy and good fruits without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. Like every one of those things in the list is about what you do with the people who are not yours, who are not with you. That for Christians, love by definition is how God has loved us when we are unlovable, when we do not deserve it, when we're not reciprocating it. So if you look at this list in James 3, 1 Corinthians 13, Galatians 5, like all of these descriptions of the fruit of the Spirit and of love are ways of loving those who do not reciprocate and do not and are not deserving of it. Right? And human wisdom cannot cal- cannot calculate that. It, it can't mm-hmm. hold 
that because that it's those people that threaten our way of life. It's those people that threaten what we hold dear. And it's because Peter is so steeped in that, that he sees what Jesus is doing as a threat. Like you no, that can't happen. Jesus, you can't do that because of look at what, what it would mean. Right. So I, I think the, this helps us see how, I mean, I don't know what other word to use, how revolutionary God's way actually is, how much it overturns what we think of as the good, even more than it overturns what we think of as the bad, right? That God's, God's coming is a threat to our moralism yeah. more than, is in a threat, than it is a threat to immorality. Now, I think it will do away with immorality, but only by doing away with our moral structures that give that immorality meaning and vice versa. Mm. Yeah, I mean, how does that yeah. strike you? Again, just to, it's, there's so many thoughts with what you just said. And I think so much of it has to do with moving in a, in an unhealthy simplicity. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think, I think one of the lines you, you have in um, the chapter in your book uh, on Nicodemus transfiguring doubt is, the church for too long has traded in cheap certainties. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And just, again, I'll, I'll, I'll bring this up lightly, Chris, and then you can do what you want with it. But like, obviously we're all aware of these conversations that are having between like on the one side, beef up security outside of schools and churches. And then the other side, you know, common sense laws that can limit the amount of weapons that people can have. And, both sides have a lot of common sense to them and yep. both sides are also deeply threatened by the other. Yep. And a conversation I was having with one of our bishops recently, we were just talking about the heartbreak of how the, the taller these discussions get, the more they're blocking out the sun that's trying to shine on. How can we teach people to process life and work through mental health issues? Mm-hmm. Right. And so one of the things I said was, you know, my, my heart is breaking for people, including myself, who just have not been taught how to cope with life's basic breaking points, let alone things that aren't basic, that are more traumatic and devastating. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, like I, I, I right now I can't go back to school, become a psychologist. Like, what can I do? And this one of our bishops said, you can take the next two or three years and simply read read some literature and talk to people who are functioning in the art of spiritual direction learn how to talk like a spiritual director learn how to preach like a spiritual director learn how to listen like a spiritual director and just a drop of water on a forest fire it feels like sometimes but there's something i can do that can help people begin to navigate our our coping issues and i'm i'm saying all that to say the more common sense a side feels, it seems like the more susceptible we're getting to those extreme demonic and satanic realities. Absolutely. And, and I think maybe a way to discern that that's happening is when everything else feels imminently threatening. Mm-hmm. When everything other than the thing you're thinking about feels imminently threatening to you. Yeah. That may be a sign that you're trading in certainties that you shouldn't be trading in. Yeah. Yeah. And because those certainties, if we, if we follow this line of thought, those certainties get their certainty by contrast. 
Ooh, mm. say more about that. So th- they they feel certain precisely because they're clear in contrast with those other things that are so obviously uncertain. Wow, wow that's good. Really good. Right. And I, that's precisely, I think, the, the, the device that Satan uses, mm. the device that evil uses against us is that this must be true because look at how clear it is compared to that. Right? Like the contrast between this false order and that disorder is so pronounced, it must be the line between good and evil. And we are supposed to be on this side of the line between good and evil. Mm. Instead wow. of recognizing, no, like that's precisely the knowledge that is our fall. Like when they're grasping for the knowledge of good and evil, what they're grasping for, what we're grasping for as human beings is to be able to know that line so we always know which side of the line to be on, right? For our own advantage, for our own protection, for our own you know, sustenance, for our, for our own endurance, whatever the case, you know, whatever it is that's motivating us, we're, we're grasping at mm-hmm. that knowledge to wield it. Right. And this is, this is not what we're called to, right? Like we're called to live in the wisdom of the spirit, which is the wisdom of the cross, which is the wisdom of the, the way of Jesus, which is, is not, it, it's a, it's a wisdom that is at odds, both with the demonic and the satanic, both with the disorder of the world and the order of the world. But it's the order of the world that kills Jesus, not the disorder. And I so think that's, that's where the you know this starts to bear on you know Holy Week Palm Sunday. So here, here's here's a question for you: What would you say is one of the first things that we have to be willing to face to pivot from areas where we may be participating in that false ordering of things? Like what is what is one of the immediate things that we'll have to face to be able to move away from that way of thinking that would be something that would make us want to not do it? Like what, what is, what is a, what is a first harsh reality we'd have to face to, to move away from the enchantment of that sort of false ordering of things? Well, I I think some of it is, and this, this may seem counterintuitive, but that's to the point is that God is not nearly as concerned about our sin as we are. In fact, God's hardly concerned about our sin at all. What God is concerned about is our neighbor's good and our good. And in recognizing that there's a way in which we, we want our sins to be grandiose. And really they're, they're not, they're, they're easy enough for God to deal with if we can just own it. That, yeah, that's me. That's me posturing myself. So I think kind of recognizing that back to the language of Corinthians, where Paul says, we are putting an obstacle in no one. We, we, we do not put any obstacles in anyone's way. Like, I think kind of recognizing, no, we, we are constantly putting obstacles in people's way. And we do that by our posturing, by assume by assuming these false certainties like we are putting obstacles in people's way yeah but if we can just own that god can work with it pretty easily right i mean i think the this is low-hanging fruit right but when people take to social media 
to rant about some evil in the world, right? That is, in every case, a mistake. In every case, those rants are a mistake. Now, they might be, you know, an, an expression of deep pain, and there, there's a way in which that, it's not an unforgivable mistake. There are no unforgivable mistakes. It's not, it's not something God can't work with. But it always ends up just putting obstacles in people's way. Like, it doesn't actually bring about anything. Hmm. And I, I think we, we have to kind of recognize, one, we absolutely can interfere with the grace of God that's coming to people's lives. We can't keep God from being God, but we can interfere. We can be stumbling blocks. We can be obstacles. But actually, like, that's easy enough to deal with. We have to be humble enough to kind of recognize that our our sins are not world-changing. They have consequences, but we can't be grandiose about even our sins, right? Like we're, we're not, God's not that easily stymied and the, our sins are small too. So I don't, I don't know if you're hearing the note I'm trying to strike here, but like, like owning that. Yes. If I'm living as an obstacle, it matters. Like people's lot, people suffer because I'm an obstacle in their way. But I'm not, I shouldn't re- recoil from that into some kind of grandiose shame. Like I've, I've somehow stopped the work of God in the world. Like somehow I, I have to, I have to be clear, clear headed about what my guilt actually is and have a, have a, a sense of humor about the way in which God works around that and works with it. Right. For the, for the good of others. Be modest about what these things mean. It's easy, I think, to to get too dramatic. Like we we can again, right hand and left hand. Right on the one hand, we can easily downplay the kind of damage we can do to other people through our judgmentalism, through our moralism, through our you know our ranting. But we can also easily over overstate how important our wrongs were <laughs> like the these these things we we never have them in right perspective and i think this is another effect that evil has on us it it distorts our vision of things so that it we see some things as too big and other things as too small like where in our minds we're obsessing about this horrible thing we've done but in fact it it might not have been so bad and then there are things we think well that wasn't an issue but in fact they were um, it was a massive obstacle for someone so i think i think we have to be careful about our own sense of how important our wrongs have been yeah that's it's really good it's really really good can i ask you a question about palm sunday yeah let's do it so the, the Palm Sunday question I have, Chris, is coming from the final chapter in your book where you bring out that the uh, the demonic and the satanic are talked about like right off the bat in Jesus's ministry. You know, he's in the wilderness with Satan. And then obviously the stories that we just talked about, his encounters with Peter, the demoniac, Legion. And then when we get to his betrayal, false courts, mob scenes, 
false accusations, uh, his crucifixion, the exchanges of money and things like that to keep everything quiet. None of those encounters talk nearly the way the earlier encounters do about the demonic and the satanic. And uh, I'm curious, and I was curious when I read it, is that saying that the demonic and the satanic had nothing to do with those events? Or is that a revelation of what a society that's not aware of any of the conversation we just had looks like when it's fully operational? Or is, it, or is it a third thing that I just didn't offer? I don't know. Say, say more. I'm not sure if I'm tracking yet. So so all in all those events of Jesus's passion leading up to Holy Saturday uh, versus yeah. about securing money and securing the tomb and all that, there's not a lot of talk about the demonic or the satanic in regards to what's happening there with Jesus. Uh, in contrast to, like you said, Mel Gibson's The Passion, where like, in almost every single scene, the devil's like slithering in yes, and out yes, of, yes, right? Yes, yes, yes. Is the lack of discussion about the satanic, satanic or demonic revealing that those events had nothing to do with the satanic or the demonic? Or is it a revelation of what a society that is under the sway of both, but isn't aware of it, looks like when it's fully operating? Mm, yeah. I, th I think it's that. I think it's the latter. That, again, when we talk about evil, evil is not a creature in and of itself. And this, I mean, this gets us into some deep, difficult waters about when we're talking about evil, are we talking about fallen angels, like creatures God have, has made who have turned against their true nature and now work against us? Or are we talking about the corruption of the good. And it's really easy to slide into something like magic or mythology here in which we've, we've got a world. And this is what I think, you know, we started today talking about, you know, growing up in a world where we, we felt like we could always sense the demonic. We, we knew to fight it because we knew where it was, right? Mm. We could always name the satanic. And there, there's nothing really tricky about that. Like, I think what we're experiencing there is very often not actually the demonic. It's simply the strange, the, the unfamiliar, mm. right? Um, and I, I think we, we haven't talked much about this in this story, but one of the, I mean, in this conversation, but part of the story is that as Christians who were given, who were poorly Christianized, we were given the language of good and evil, demonic and satanic and so on, but then we ended up applying that language to things that it doesn't relate to. Like everything's everything strange that unsettled me gets labeled as evil when it's almost certainly not that it's just strange to you. Right. That's again, perhaps a different conversation, but I think what we have to stress wherever we fall on how evil operates, how, what, what kind of agency it has, what kind of power it has, we have to recognize it's not something God has made. Like evil, and evil beings are not like God's creatures that have a purpose in the world. They're corruptions of good God has made working against itself, right? So the only thing we get in the, in the passion narrative about Satan is that Judas is filled with Satan. I think the way to hear that is Judas is emptied 
of everything that is truly his like to be filled with the sa- with the satanic is to be emptied of his humanity right mm. so if the fruit of the spirit is self control the outcome of the satanic is a complete loss of self and this is why judas is a suicide like th- there's nothing left to him right he's completely taken over by a cause by an idea by an agenda there's no personhood left there right at least for us. Now, I actually think, and we've talked about this before, this is why Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come, because he's going after Judas, right? He he can get to Judas in ways we cannot. But to, for Judas to be filled with the satanic, it means that that there's no humanity left for him at that point. No, none that we can get at. None that he can get at. And that's what I think happens next with Herod, with Pilate, with the, the authorities. Like, the machine just does its work at that point right it's evil has set it up so that the the wheels of history turn a particular way and they're going to grind jesus like once he's in those wheels that's that's what's going to happen and this is why i think even those who love jesus and those who remain faithful to him do not protest like no one speaks up and says you know, you shouldn't be doing it. Pilate's wife has this dream, have nothing to do with this innocent man. Pilate says, I don't see, I don't find any fault in him, but the wheels are already turning for him, for Pilate, as well as for everybody else. Mm. And so even the people who stay with Jesus, you know, who stand at the cross, they're not protesting. They're not fighting it. And I think part of the reason they're not is because they don't know. Think about the Emmaus disciples. What do they say when they encounter Jesus on the way? Like Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, who was a prophet, and we had hoped was the Messiah. Right. There's a way in which they've accepted that the way things go must somehow fit in the right and wrong of things. It must, there's a, there's a kind of acceptance that God's will somehow must be being done here. And that, that's what evil does, right? It gets us to accept the, the natural flow of things as the measure of right and wrong. And, and this is why, I mean, not to sidetrack us into, but this is why conversations about immigration, conversations about violence, conversations about sex, if you pay attention, it is a war between different common senses. Yeah. Right? Between different principalities who who provide a, a coherent way of life. And according to this coherent way of life, sexuality means this. According to this way of life, immigration means this. And the threat to that way of life is what has to be rejected. And then to another way of life, given by another principality, then sexuality means this, and it's threatened. But but both are concerned with the that with continuation, with security, with establishing an order that will last. Right? That that can endure. And the kingdom of God is not that. Right? Like that that's why the prophetic, why the material, like the, those ways of life that the saints embody are 
are disruptive. And it, it's why the saints often end up as martyrs. Yeah. Right. Because they are, they are a threat to a, to an order. And this, this is, this is, I think, especially true of Christian orders. So, you know, there yes. are multiple orders in the world and every, evil is always working within the, the rhythms and patterns of a, a particular way of life. So, you know, Spain in the 1300s has a particular way of life that evil is working with. It's different from 21st century America, but the basic devices are the same. And the, the, the trickiness works the same way, even though it's working with different moralities and immoralities and the disruptive life of the spirit, the, the ways in which the, the, pro, the prophetic is embodied, you know, it, it's a threat to whatever order you're living in, right? Whether that's, you know, medieval Spain or contemporary America. It's crazy because I'm thinking about the man who was lame by the, by the pool and Jesus says to him, do you want me to heal you? And his response is, I have no one to put me in the water. Mm -hmm. And it's like, he can't think outside of the system that's operating. Yeah. So <clears throat> he, he believed that he, that Jesus, that he could be healed, but he just had no paradigm for anything other than what the system was doing. The system was first person in the pool gets healed. Yes. Jesus says, do you want me to heal you? And he says, I have no one to bring me there. That's right. So he's stuck in that systematic way of thinking to the point where he, he needs someone to break into that flow to say, there's, there's, there's another way that this can happen. Absolutely. It to <laughs> that, be interrupted. That, that's it. it. There's another way for this to happen. I just had a conversation last week with, with a guy about the cowboy and Indian stories and a, masculinity and engaging like Christian Dumais, Christian Dumais book, Jesus and John Wayne and all that. Um, Paul Andliner and I talking about it. And one of the things that I said to him is evil is done always through a failure of imagination. It's a failure of seeing what God sees. Evil does not have to be done. Like there are no truly necessary evils. Mm. Mm. Because if they were truly necessary, they wouldn't be evil. And you know, Hannah and I said this to Paul, but Hannah Arendt brings this point out that the people who talk about necessary evils very quickly to move to insisting they weren't evil because they were necessary. Like we, they start as saying, "Yeah, this is bad," but very quickly they're calling it good. And when you call bad good, that is the definition of blasphemy of the spirit. That is the definition of being turned over to the satanic. Mm -hmm. So that line of, yes, it's bad, but we have to do it. Like that's where the satanic it's one at that, like at that point, you know, you're, you've lost the battle, right? You, you, you've been defeated. And, but the only way out of that is to always trust that the infinite spirit, the wisdom of God, there is always another way. There is always another way. You do not have to do wrong in the name of right. You don't have to do damage in the name of God. You can't save God by acting in ungodly ways. God doesn't need to be saved, for one thing. But even if you are feeling that urge to save God, you could only do that in ways that are true to God. 
right? And Christian America, the Christianism that you and I have grown up around, like is animated by the concern to save God in ungodly ways. Mm -hmm. That the only way to save God is to do it in ungodly ways. And so that's a sign of how, how the satanic it's outwitted us. We, we are, we've been outmaneuvered. Absolutely. And there is a difference, right? Like there's a difference between calling that evil good, which is to say it's necessary and doing something that's saying there's not like engaging it in ways and saying, I don't have the imagination for it. Mm. Like, I mean, I'm thinking about historical examples, right? Bonhoeffer's engagement with the plot to kill Hitler. Well, but yeah, which we don't know as much about that as some people think we know, but yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, enough, there's a limit, there's a limit to us, to our, to our imagination. There's, there's not a limit to God's imagination. So if I, like the humility I have to live with is I can only do what I can do, but I have to have this open handedness of if I can't see it, it's not because it can't be seen. There's something that's keeping me from seeing some other way. So again, let's talk, let's talk about like school shootings. There is a way, there is a way for this to be done away with from our society. There is a way evil is not inevitable. It doesn't have to happen. Right. And it's, going to keep happening until we share a responsibility for it and accept that way. The the things that are going to be put forward as solutions, the, the simple ones that get thrown out in rants online or on TV, those aren't going to do it, but there is a way there absolutely is a way. And I think if we don't accept that, I mean, it, we're we're capitulating to the omnipotence of evil. Yeah, and I and I think uh, this is this is part of what I'm saying about Christianity as you and I have known it. We have capitulated to evil. We've said we must do evil for good's sake because evil well, is so powerful. And, and to be clear, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not. It wasn't a comment about justifying one thing or another. Oh, okay. The difference I was trying to make is to say that disregarding for a moment the kind of contentions about his involvement and stuff like that, it does seem like, right, he 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 does say, whether he goes through with this or not, you know, his involvement, mm-hmm. that if if I'm a part of this, I can never pastor again. Yeah, right. Which does seem to be a pretty that seems to be something different than oh, it is. I'm calling yeah. the evil good. Yes. It's right. necessary. Yeah. Like that's saying it's not necessary. There is another way, but I don't know it. Yeah. And and I think, I mean, it's it's hard to know exactly. I mean, we're reading between the lines with Bonifer, but it, it's a few things seem clear to me. One is that, is that he's saying, if whatever my involvement here is, it changes me. Mm-hmm. It's and that there are ways of being involved that are sinful. And he does seem to be saying that there are sometimes which sin is unavoidable. Right. And I, I think it might be worth drawing a distinction there between I can't avoid sin and evil is necessary. Like I might not be able to avoid sin, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean evil is necessary. Because one names my own limitations, the yes. other names a condition of reality. Exactly. But yeah. I'm, a, I, I'm going to sin. I'm mm-hmm. going to sin. 
but that the evil of that is not inevitable. I will, and that's that's part of why I answer for those sins. Because, like, what what will come clear to me, either in this life or the next, in in the what we call the last judgment of God, is in this case you sinned and you couldn't see otherwise. But now, look, like, look at what is actually possible, right? I mean, if if this weren't true, then Jesus would have had to have sinned. Like, if evil is inevitable, first of all, evil then has an ontology. It is a thing standing right. against God. Mm-hmm. And it truly is compelling. And what you're, what you're seeing in Jesus is that it's not. It's a trick. Like, evil is a lie. It's not a truth. It's not inevitable. Right? And but it's what's stunning is how deeply ingrained in us the idea is that sometimes you just have to do wrong. You just have to. And ironically, and I, I think predictably, once you recognize how evil works, the people who are most likely to believe that evil is good are the people who are most confident of their own moral purity. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Wow. Like right. the people who are, you know, holiness folk, like people who are insistent on sexual purity mm-hmm. are the ones who at another level insist that doing harm to those who are impure is a necessary part of life. Right. Like that. that and that's, I mean, that's just a tell about how the satanic works, right? That the, the satanic's purchase on us is not real. It's illusion. And the illusion is that this is how reality has to go, that you you just have to do it. Yeah. This disorder has to be met with a kind of violence to subdue it. Absolutely. Right. I mean, this, what is it? Is it after the Watts riots? Mm -hmm. Billy Graham, use it from the chopper. And if I'm remembering rightly, like he's super like compelled. Yes. Right. In all kinds of ways and move. But one of the things that he does say is what is needed is law and order. Yes. Law and order is code for the evil that must be done in order to establish the good. Right. And the the point would be the law of the Lord, right? The order of God does not weaponize evil. It doesn't use yes. evil for good ends. Mm-hmm. And and uh, you know you don't you don't bring about God's way in the world acting in ungodly ways <laughs> like that's that should be obvious to us but it isn't it isn't obvious at all. Mm-hmm. Bill, I'm going to give you the last word, last question, whatever you're. Definitely the last question. Um, years ago, I did a study through Ephesians, um, and uh, one verse, and I know we don't want to just pull one verse, especially in Ephesians when I'm taking something mid sentence. So, (laughs) but then again, I think Paul only wrote two full sentences in the entire book of Ephesians and a whole lot of commas. That's right. Um, Ephesians three 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That the manifold wisdom of God through the church can be made known to the rulers and authorities, not just in secular mm. places, but in 
yeah. heavenly places. What is he talking about there? And is there some is there some really good news there? And is there some sense in which we truly underestimate how much good we can do in the world as the church? Oh, absolutely. Is, is that is that verse cluing us into an outrageous amount of good that we can do? Absolutely. That we can do and that we must do, that must be done in the world. That's exactly right. And the the point Paul is making is a sociopolitical one, that that God has included the Gentiles into his people. Mm -hmm. And that the witness that we embody in that reconciliation of Jew and Gentile together, hard as it is, seemingly impossible as it is, because our identities are defined over against each other. Like for God to be able to bring that about is a witness against the principalities and powers that give us those identities in order to establish ourselves, right? In order to give us meaning, mm. right? So what, what you're seeing here is the, the church embodies this witness of the kingdom of God that works at a different order than the orders of this world, right? Wow. And it's why the, you know, as I'll say all the time, like holiness is just as far removed from the moral as it is the immoral. The kingdom of God is just as far removed from order as we know it as it is from disorder as we know it. And the the church is embodying that. And and tragically, we've rarely done it. Right? We very rarely. I think you know the saints have done it at times. There are moments where the, the church is embodied in a place here or there under extreme circumstances, it has happened, but it doesn't happen nearly enough. And, but it can, it absolutely can. I mean, there's the, we, I mean, I think Bonhoeffer is a good example of that. The, we, we've seen it happen some and the, I, I don't want to downplay that. It's that it's not that it's never happened, but it is it's rarer than it than it should be, where the church is embodying it. in our Pentecostal tradition, there's there's a little bit of time at Azusa Street mission in Los Angeles where there is a different order showing. Where men and women and children with all of the that they're they're breaking laws in embody like breaking, you know, Jim Crow laws, embodying a a kind of wisdom that's not of this world. It doesn't last for very long. It you know quickly spins off into all kinds of fractured reactions. But for a moment, we get a glimpse of a different order, a different a different way of being, and the the way of being that Jesus that Jesus embodied. So I, I don't want to create any kind of mythology of Bonhoeffer or a mythology of Azusa street. Like those things are complex. And even when this breaks into the world, it breaks into the world in, in ways that are still challenged, that are still deeply, deeply conflicted, but it's recognizable too. Like, okay, that's different. Like that there, the, that's a different way there's a, a story about an NBA player, um, Lou Williams, who gets carjacked. Some of you've heard me tell this story before. He gets carjacked. And before it's over, he takes the man out for dinner. <laughs> like the man holds him up and then they end up like, he's like, yeah, don't just let me like give you money or take my car. Or like, what do you need? Let me take care of you. And they go to dinner together. Right. 
like that's a different order mm. like like there's a wisdom there that you're catching a glimpse of oh there's another possibility there's another possibility like one of my favorite examples of this is elisha when i think it's the assyrian army has surrounded the city and the king's like what are we going to do and elisha prays and it blinds the eyes of all of these soldiers right remember this yep and the king says what do you want us to do you want us to kill them I was like, no, like feed them, like serve a meal. Like that's a different order mm. that we, and of course it's fraught. Like the, those stories are fraught on both sides, but that, that moment is a glimpse at the, the, the kingdom of God breaking in. And you, you know, there's the, I don't want to tie the, the, the bow too neatly. Right. I mean, I, I want to somehow say, it is possible to do good in the world. Evil is not necessary. We can do good on all of these fronts. There are ways to respond to questions about abortion. There are ways to respond to questions about violence in schools. There are ways to, to, to confront these challenges in the lives of, the, of our neighbors. Not as issues, by the way. There's no way to deal with them as issues, but there are ways of dealing with our neighbors. Right. The abstractions cannot be solved, but our neighbors can be cared for. Mm-hmm. Like I, I can't have oh, a final important. word about, say, um, transgenderism. But if my neighbor is experiencing some kind of dysphoria, I absolutely can love him or her or them. I can love that person. Always. And I don't have to do evil to them. Ever. For their good, supposedly, or not. And so on down the line. Like, uh, the you know, abortion, same thing. Like I cannot solve abortion in the abstract. I can propose ways of making law. I can propose ways of speaking about it, but I can always love my neighbor who's had an abortion or is thinking about having an abortion or whatever the case might be. Like those, those things are always possible, but the possibility will always be fraught. Like it will be challenged on, on every side, right? There, It's not going to be simple or easy, but it, but it is possible. So I, I'm, I'm trying to say all of that once, whether I'm succeeding or not, well, obviously not succeeding, but trying that's a to good strategy that you just gave. That's a good, that's a good takeaway is at the very, very least, we can all start by saying before I engage, before I engage, whatever this discussion is or whatever the conversation is, can I make sure that I see a person first and not the views of that person first? Yeah. And I think it's- it also reveals the futility, right, of our posturing and our kind of rants mm-hmm. because we're not talking about people anymore. Nope. That's right. We're talking in abstraction. That's right. Yeah. Well, yeah. And we're actually making it so that grace cannot get to people. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the thing I want to under, like, underline is that that kind of abstraction becomes the obstacle to grace in the lives of real people. Mm-hmm. Everything I say in abstraction about X, Y, or Z, evil uses against real people. Right? And that, that, I mean, that's, that's the, the trickiness of it. When you, when you put the uh, title on this one, Chris, like make sure you do say something like wait till the end or watch to the end or listen to the end. Like I re- <laughs> you got to make it th- th- these last, these last 30 minutes are, it's one of those things as a pastor 
that is the most frustrating is not when people it's not when people aren't getting it. It's that's the most frustrating. It's when something good is happening and you just hope, hope, hope that people are hearing it. And like I this 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 podcast with you guys felt very special to me uh, to put old school terms on it. It feels very anointed to me. And I, I really pray that if people have listened this far, that there's like Bishop Ed said in that sermon about money, don't just make decisions, just listen to it and don't do anything yet. Just listen to it and let it, let it work on you. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to go back and listen to this without a pen or a notepad or a Bible. I'm just going to listen to it and listen to all of the, the goods that were dropped off in this conversation. I just feel like it's very, very, very important and powerful. One 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 last word then we'll we'll stop it here. Thank you, Bill, for that. Is this is this is what I was feeling led to like right in the aftermath of the of January sixth, a couple of years ago, the, the storming of the Capitol. I it, like a lot of this came to the head for me in terms of how am I going to have whatever presence I have pastorally online. Like, how am I going to live that in ways that are actually good for people? Mm-hmm. Because one, I, I am not going to accept that there's like, I'm not going to be able to do much, but I have something to do. Yes. But like it in the big scheme of things, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny responsibility, but it's my responsibility. That's right. And I'm not going to wash my hands of what I have to do. And I'm also not going to, you know, puff up my self-image into, you know, I need to take a stance. Nobody needs me to take a stance, but I have to do something. Mm. And one of the expressions of that was to start these podcasts as long form conversations. And one of the things I've learned, I've been doing this, you know, for a couple of years now, is that our unwillingness to have conversations of this length and this depth and complexity is a sign of how we've kind of surrendered to the inevitability of evil, right? That we're, we feel powerless. And so we try to be simpler. We feel powerless. And so we try to be sharper. We try to be more to Mm -hmm. the point, but we're not powerless. It just takes time and patience and a lot of, a lot of humility, not taking ourselves too seriously and that's why I think, Bill, what you're sensing in this conversation is like the, the modesty of this is what we can see. This is what it seems like scripture is saying to us. This is what we hear Jesus calling us to. And it's not solving anything, right? We're not pretending to have like the, we're not ranting about anything. And we're also not offering any kind of final word, but we are talking we're talking long enough to get to a place where we're talking from the depths of our hearts about, about these things. And I think that is what's holy. And that is a resistance. That is a way of saying, I am not going to be Mm -hmm. caught up in the wheels of inevitability. Like that's just, it doesn't have to be that way. And you know, there, there are fewer people who are going to get this far in the conversation and hear this than would have, if I had some pithy thing to say and tweeted it, right? Yeah. Fewer people will hear it, but it will matter much more for the few who do. And, and I can do it in ways that 
are true to what I'm responsible to do. And I think that's that's where the the anointing is. It rests on that, right? That God anoints me. Now, Bishop Mike yesterday sent me this message. Just continue to be yourself. Remember the sp- I was telling him that I'm I'm feeling too sped up. There's too many things going on in my life right now and I can't I can't kind of find the right rhythm. And he said, we, we will be in our praying for you. You're doing, you're doing well and you're going to do well. We'll keep talking. You're not alone. We'll help you find a good rhythm. Just continue to be yourself. Remember the spirit gently leads the evil one pushes and drives. The spirit gently leads the evil one pushes and drives. God has called you to be yourself. God has called you to be apostolic, a bishop who communicates divine truth through the uniqueness of who you are, not someone else, or an elusive idea of who you might think you are supposed to be. Mm. This includes your gifts, your strengths, your weakness, your humanness all yielded to him. That's it, right? That's the wisdom that avoids the inevitability, the supposed inevitability. Mm Mm-hmm. If you made it this far, you're welcome. <laughs> Good Lord, Bishop Mike. Come on. That yeah. just set me free on about 15 fronts. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man. It's incredibly freeing, right? Like when you when you realize that it's not that hard to do good in the world. It <laughs> evil wants you to think that it is that it is inevitable and the good is ultimately worthless or meaningless. But that's not true. All right, pray for us, Brewer. Lord, I thank you for your tender care and your mercies. We pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask, O God, that you would sanctify our imaginations. And for those who feel like evil is inevitable, Lord, I pray that you would gift them with hope. For those who are pushed, remind them of the gentle leading of your spirit. You're the God who is with us. And for that, we give thanks. In Christ's name, amen.